Well, I hope you picked up a uh, copy of the uh, sermon notes as you were uh, coming in. Uh, and let me uh, uh, sort of set the message up in this way. Uh, in the message two weeks ago, you might remember two weeks ago, uh, our children presented their Christmas music. And uh, when they concluded, I just had a brief period of time, and I just presented uh, a very brief, what I called Christmas uh, devotional, uh, asking the question, what is the true Christmas spirit? And to answer that question, uh, we went through the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke to see how the various people involved in the birth of Christ responded to his birth. Uh, we looked at the response of uh, Mary, uh, we looked at the response of Elizabeth and Zacharias, the parents of John the Baptist. Uh, we looked at the response of the angels, the shepherds, and then remember old Simeon and uh, Anna uh, in the uh, temple there in Jerusalem. We even turned over to Matthew and looked at the response of the wise men. And we discovered that without exception, they all responded with a spirit of worship. They all responded with a heart just overflowing with love, appreciation, and adoration for who Jesus is and why he came to earth. We also discovered that, they, that they, every one of them, without exception, demonstrated three very specific characteristics of true biblical worship. Uh, first, we saw that worship, true worship is always what? Internal. Is something that rises from within and then flows out of you. It's something that just captures your entire being. It captures your attention. It captures your affections and your abilities. We also saw that their worship was not only internal, something that grabbed their entire being, but their worship was very, very intense. I mean, it was something they could not contain. We looked at some of the words uh, that were used. Uh, referring to the worship being big, being loud, being extravagant uh, in light of the fact of who Jesus was and why he came to this earth. They suddenly realized no gift, no worship could ever be too extravagant, uh, too intense for him. And then, of course, we saw also that worship always involves humility, uh, bowing to the authority of God to honor him and to follow him. Now, this morning, I want us to go back to Luke chapters 1 and 2. As I was preparing that little devotion two weeks ago, uh, uh, what I'm going to share today began to stand out to me, and that is simply to put a greater focus on the object of their worship, the Lord Jesus. Uh, in other words, what was it about the birth of Jesus that should invoke such an intense internal and humble response of worship. And as we do this, uh, we will discover truly the greatest child ever born. And we'll discover three reasons why that is so. And look at the first one there in your sermon notes. Jesus was the greatest child ever born because he was sovereign God. Because he was sovereign God. In Luke chapter 1, verse 32, uh, the angel uh, said to Mary when he was giving her the uh, uh, 
the promise of his coming that she would uh, conceive as a virgin. He said he will be great and he will be called, notice this phrase, the son of the most high. And then in verse 35, after Mary asked, well, how can this be since I am a virgin? Uh, the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the, again, notice the phrase, most high will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. Now look at that next statement in your notes. The term most high was a very familiar Jewish title that you see in the Old Testament given to God that emphasizes God's supreme authority over all things. Uh, you have the references there. Let me just share these with you. The first place in the Bible that you see this term referred to God, the Most High, is in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18, in Abraham's encounter with the priest Melchizedek. And it, and it talks about Melchizedek being a priest of God Most High. And then in verse 19, it refers to God, the Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. The Most High God who is possessor of heaven and earth. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 38, uh, verse 8, it refers to God as the Most High who gave the nations their inheritance when he separated the sons of man and set the boundaries for the people. So again, you, you see this common denominator. This phrase always refers to the sovereignty of God, the authority of God, the control of God over all things. In 2 Samuel chapter 22, we have David's great song of praise to God for delivering him from Saul. And in verse 14 we read, The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered His voice. And he talks about his result of the command of God that David was delivered from the evil of Saul. And then a very interesting uh, uh, cross-reference, Daniel chapter 4, verse 17, we read, The Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. Now, in the context, this was the lesson God was trying to teach. You know who? Anybody know? That's right. That's right. Very good. Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, of course, was the king of Babylon. Babylon was the world empire at that time. They had conquered the uh, children of, uh, of God. had taken them into captivity. And you remember he was a very prideful man in his... Uh, uh, with, with being king and, and the authority and what his nation had been able to accomplish. And uh, do you remember how God taught Nebuchadnezzar the reality that he was subordinate to the true God, to the Most High? Remember how he taught him the lesson? Yeah, he went insane. God caused him to go insane. He talks about how he became like a beast in the field and began to eat grass. Uh, and then God... Uh, restored him. He restored his sanity, and after he restored his sanity, this is then what Nebuchadnezzar declared. Listen to this. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High. There's that phrase again. And praised and honored him who lives forever, 
For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what hast thou done? I think Nebuchadnezzar what? Learned the lesson that he was subordinate to the authority of God and the only reason he was in the position that he was in is that God had allowed him to be put in that position. And then in Psalm 717 in both Psalm 9-2 uh, the psalmist wrote, I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Psalm 21-7, for the king trusts in the Lord and through the loving kindness of the Most High he will not be shaken. Psalm 47, 2, for the Lord most high is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdues people under our feet. He chooses our inheritance for us. And in that last reference, Lamentations 3, verses 37 and 38, interesting passage. Uh, remember, uh, this followed the destruction of the city of Jerusalem because of their sin. Actually refers to the Babylonian captivity. When Nebuchadnezzar came down with his forces from the north, uh, overcame the children of God, destroyed Jerusalem, uh, many lost their lives, and uh, many were taken uh, captive as Daniel into uh, Babylon. And there are many people complaining, railing against God, angry because God had allowed this to happen. And this is what we read in Lamentations 3. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass? unless the Lord has commanded it. It is not from the mouth, he says, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? In other words, blessing or judgment. Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? Let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. So we see, that's just a sampling. This phrase is used throughout the Old Testament but it always refers to the sovereignty of God, the authority, the control of God over heaven and earth and all creation. Now, why did they worship Jesus at his birth with such intensity? And why should we worship him today with the same intensity? Because the one born to Mary in the manger in Bethlehem was the most high God the sovereign God over heaven and earth. As the words of the song allude to, when Mary kissed the face of Jesus, she literally was kissing the face of God. Face of God. God had come to earth in human flesh. As it says in Colossians 1.15, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. And then look at those verses in your sermon notes. Look at Isaiah 7, 14, uh, one of those over 300 prophecies uh, that we talked about last week in the Old Testament referring to the uh, coming of Christ. It says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means what? God with us. God with us. Look at Isaiah 9. Verses 6 and 7, another one of those 300 prophecies. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government 
will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, notice, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace. And then I love in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 1, uh, verses 2 and 3. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory. And notice this next phrase, and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by what? The word of his power, because he is the most high God. You know, one of my favorite uh, stories, I've shared this many times before, with the little kindergarten class where the uh, teacher asked the uh, boys and girls uh, to draw something that's special to them. And so all the children get their crayons out and their paper and they're working feverishly and they all turn their papers in. But there's one little boy, he's still working, the teacher's getting a little impatient. Okay, Johnny, you need to turn your, your paper in. And he just keeps working. He, I'm not finished yet. And then she finally says, well, well Johnny... Uh, what are you drawing? He says, well, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher said, well, Johnny, I mean, nobody knows what God looks like. And Johnny answered, well, they will after I'm finished. And, uh, <laughs> and the point is, Jesus put a face on God for us. Now that Jesus has come, we no longer need to be in the dark about God. All you have to do is look at Jesus, examine his life, study him. And you learn of the nature and the character and the values and conduct of God. So Jesus was the greatest child ever born because no other child ever born uh, can claim to be God. Look at the second truth. Jesus was the greatest child ever born because he was sinless man. He was born sinless with no sin. In Luke 135, the angel referred to Jesus as being the holy offspring. And then look at those two New Testament references. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. Who committed, what? No sin. 1 John 3, 5. In him there is no sin. Look at Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7. Who although, referring to Jesus, he existed in the form of God. And we, we studied this. Remember, we went through recently a verse-by-verse uh, -verse study of the book of Philippians. And when we were in chapter 2, we discovered that word form. It, it, it's a word that refers to the fact that Jesus was the very essence of God. He was one with God. He wasn't just a like God or, or a symbol. He was in very essence, in very nature, God himself. So he did, although he existed in the form of God, he did not notice, regard equality with God. He was equal, a thing to be what? Grass, selfishly, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. So on that first Christmas morning, God literally left heaven and invaded this earth. Or we might say, Jesus actually left heaven when? When he became a fertilized egg in Mary's womb. What a staggering thought. What an absolutely staggering thought. That God's sovereign, most high, possessor of heaven and earth, 
with all authority, with all power. He left heaven and became a fertilized egg in the womb of Mary in order to be born in human form as a sinless, as a sinless man. And look at Hebrews 7.26, talking about the fact that he was sinless. He, referring to Jesus, is the kind of priest we need. Why? Because he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. In that same passage, don't miss this, in that same passage it talks about the fact that Jesus was the only priest that ever lived that did not have to make sacrifice for his own sins. And why? Because he had no sin. He was the sinless, the perfect man. And this takes us right to our third point in our notes. Jesus was the greatest child ever born because he was what? Savior of mankind. He was born the Savior of mankind. He was the only man ever born that could qualify to be the Savior of mankind because he was sinless and therefore he could be that perfect sacrifice. He was able to qualify as that substitute that would bear the penalty of our sin. And because he was perfect and dying in our place for the penalty of our sin, to cancel out that sin debt that we might know forgiveness. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5, He who knew what? No sin became what? Sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. So as being the Savior of mankind, He canceled out our sin debt, imputed all His righteousness to our account to give us a right standing before God. And so we stand before God not on the basis of our works, not on the basis of our performance and efforts or righteousness, but on the basis of the blood of our Savior that canceled out our sin debt and on the basis of the righteousness of our risen Lord that was imputed, deposited into our account before God. Look at these next verses that all emphasize the fact that He was Savior of mankind. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 31, again going back to the angel's message to Mary, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And Jesus means what? He will save his people from their sins. Luke 1, verse 47, uh, uh, Mary is uh, doing her song of praise, and she says, My spirit has rejoiced. In God my Savior. Look at Luke 1, uh, 68, 69. This is Zacharias' uh, hymn of praise. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited us and accomplished redemption for His people and raised up a horn of salvation. Look at Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, the message that the angels gave to the shepherds. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for what? All people, all people groups of the entire world. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior. A Savior. And then I love Titus 2.11. For the grace 
of God has appeared. Referring to that first Christmas morning. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. 1 John 3, 5, you know He appeared. Why did He appear? In order to take away sins. And how did Jesus take away our sin? Philippians 2, 8. And being found in appearance as a man, this most high God humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, as He bore the penalty that you and I deserve. So Jesus was the greatest child ever born because he was sovereign God, because he was sinless man, because he was the savior of mankind. And then fourth and last, Jesus was the greatest child ever born because he is Lord of all. He is Lord of all. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But of course, we have the wonderful opportunity to bow that knee, what? Now. To know salvation. To where it won't be later when it's too late. And we're cast into an eternal hell. Look at Luke chapter 1, verses 43 and 44. This is when Mary went to visit Elizabeth, who was pregnant uh, with uh, John the Baptist. Mary would, at this time, would have been in her first trimester. In the earliest weeks of her pregnancy, Elizabeth would have probably been about six, seven months into her pregnancy. And she says, and how has it happened to me? This is Elizabeth speaking to Mary. And how has it happened to me that the mother, notice this next phrase, of my Lord should come to me. The mother of my Lord should come to me. For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby, John the Baptist, leaped in my womb with joy. And then look at, go back to Luke 2, 11 again, the angel's message to the shepherds. For today, in the city of David, there has been born a Savior who is what? Christ the Lord. And you know, I always have loved that verse. And I can't linger long here, but it's always been my conviction that one of the greatest tragedies that has taken place over the last few decades in the church in America is that we have attempted to preach a gospel that literally says, and there are men that will try to teach this, there are men that will try to defend this position, that you can receive Jesus as Savior and then at some later point determine what you're going to do with Him as Lord. Folks, that is contrary to everything the Scripture... and And this says it very simply. The Savior is who? Christ the Lord. Yes, salvation is a gift. As many as received Him, to them He gave the power to become the sons of God. But you've got to receive the gift that God is offering. And the gift that God is offering is Jesus the Lord. The one who died on the cross for you and then rose again as Lord of all. And as a result of His resurrection, we should no longer, as 2 Corinthians 5 says, no longer live for ourselves but for Him who died for us and rose again on our behalf. So Jesus is Lord. Now, as we close, very, very quickly, look at the very obvious applications for today. We're talking about getting in the Christmas spirit. We're talking about, well, why did they worship Him with such intensity 
And why should we worship him with such intensity? Because of who he is and why he came. Because he did come as sovereign God, as the sinless man. He did come to be the Savior of mankind and the Lord of all. So that demands a response from us. And, and that's all that worship is. Worship is our response to God's love. He's taken the initiative, and now we're to reciprocate to His love and respond to Him and give Him a response that is honorable and worthy. And here it is. Number one, because Jesus is Lord of all, obey His commands. He is worthy of our obedience, no matter what the cost, no matter what the sacrifice. He is worthy of us demonstrating to Him an uncompromising faith where we submit to His authority to serve His agenda and live to seek His approval. Amen? And that's why Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord and not do the things I say? And that's why also, going back to what I said, this, this cheap gospel that's been preached, this easy believism, that's why Jesus, you go at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, there will be many. And don't miss this. There will be many who will say, well, Lord, Lord. I mean, we knew you. Didn't we do this and didn't we do that? I mean, I went to church and I tithed. And I was even a Sunday school teacher and I did this and that. And Jesus, there's something he'll look at and he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And these are individuals that made a profession of faith, but they never surrendered to the supreme authority of Jesus as most high God. They tried to divide the gift God was offering. Oh, I'll take this. You know, if I, my brother, I don't think of mine this, and I... And I He'll probably remember this. I remember after I was converted to Christ. And many of you know, know that I was converted out of a deep life of sin. And I, I was the older brother. And as often is the case, what older brothers do, uh, the uh, younger ones do in excess. And uh, he even exceeded me with some of his things. And I remember I, once I became saved, I was devastated, uh, number one, by the example that I had shown my brother and I had my Probably the greatest burden God placed in my heart was for Mark's salvation. And I remember the first opportunity after I was converted. Uh, there's six years difference between us. And uh, I was converted at the age of uh, 19, so I guess you had to have been 13, 14, right in there. I, I wanted to go home, and I wanted to share the gospel with him. And I'll never forget, I'll never forget, we were outside, it was night. And I was sharing the gospel with Mark, and it was amazing how he understood because of his response that I was sharing. And then he made a statement about like this. He said, but Andy, if I put my trust in Jesus, my Lord and Savior, that will mean I will lose every friend I presently have because these were drugless that he was hanging with. Most of them either in jail now or dead. And I said, that's right, Mark. And then I'll never 
forget the statement he then made that just pierced my heart with grief. He said, I choose my friends. And then I just remember just, just praying for Mark uh, over the years. And then uh, some of y'all remember, they've been here a long time. Remember uh, 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 Wilkerson came here, uh, the man that wrote uh, The Cross and the Switchblade. And he did a, uh, a series of evangelistic meetings at the old, uh, uh, I forget if we called it Civic Center, but the old one uh, downtown. And uh, I got my brother to attend, and God gloriously saved my brother uh, at that time. But, but the point I want to make is that, folks, Jesus is worthy of all that you are, of all that you possess, and your total allegiance. And because he's worthy of that, in light of what he accomplished for you, God is not going to accept anything less than he will not allow his son to be dishonored by a superficial faith, a superficial confession. Look at the second thing. Because Jesus is Savior of mankind, trust him for salvation. Put your trust and your confidence in him. You cannot save yourself. He's the only one, because he was the sinless man and sovereign God that could provide us salvation. And he died on that cross for the penalty of your sin. He rose again to offer you forgiveness. He offers himself to you as a free gift. The Savior is Lord. So trust him. Receive him. Put your confidence in him. And know that assurance of eternal life. And then look at the th third thing. Because Jesus is sinless man, strive to be like him. Not that we're, we're never going to achieve sinless perfection on this side of eternity. Praise God, when we see him, the scripture says we will become like him in his purity. But until then, it is a process. We're, we're, we're growing in Christ. And so we worship him by demonstrating that he's his life is worthy of emulation. That we should uh, put our focus upon him. He should be our greatest passion, our greatest pursuit. As Paul said in Philippians 3, I count all things lost. In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Yea, I have counted all things as rubbish, as dung, as garbage in comparison to knowing him. And then this went into when he says, man, he said, my one desire is to know the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable to his death, to know the power of the resurrection. He says, with every ounce of my energy, I press forward towards that prize of, of God, my high calling in Christ Jesus. So we're to strive to be like him, to walk as he walked. You go to Philippians 2. What does that practically mean? He wants to teach you and I the mind of Christ, where we put others ahead of ourselves, where others are more important. It's not about us, but it's about God and ministering to others. He wants to develop within us the eyes of Christ, where we're not just always looking to our interests, what's best for us, but we're looking out for the interests of others. And for the sake of Christ, we invest in a lost world to rend men and women and boys and girls to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the arms of Christ, he wants to break us out of our stinking selfishness so that we're willing to lay down our rights, to lay down all that we are, all that we possess, surrender them on the altar of the cross, to be able to embrace him, to follow him, and to embrace others in the love of God. 
to embrace those within the family of God to demonstrate the authenticity of our Christianity and to embrace a lost world because we've been commanded by our Lord to go and preach the gospel to all creation. And then look at the fourth thing, because Jesus is sovereign God, surrender control. Surrender control. Now listen, if you're a believer, listen to me just a moment, and then we'll close. If you are a believer, you know Christ. Ephesians 1, it says you've been accepted by God as his beloved. Out of his mercy, because of what Christ did for you. Do you, do you realize what that means? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He forgave you of your sin, past, present, and future. Therefore, he loves you. He values you as much as he loves and values the Lord Jesus. He is committed, as committed to protect you, to provide for you, and to glorify you so you can finish the work he's given you here on earth to do as he was committed to protect, provide, and glorify his son to finish the work God had given him to do. Again, it's obvious that doesn't mean we're not going to know adversity, we're not going to know suffering and difficulty. Our Savior, our Lord knew that. And God's going to allow us to experience that, to shape our lives, to make us more like him, and to provide us a platform to make Christ known to others. But my point is, he loves you with a love that will never fail you. A love that will never let you go. And yes, a love that will never let you off. A love that's committed to refining your faith, your hope and love in Jesus. A love that's committed to training and disciplining to bring you into the image and to the likeness of Jesus Christ. But the simple point I'm making is this sovereign God who controls all things is a God with nail-pierced hands. And it's those nail-pierced hands, hands of love, mercy, that desires to fashion and shape and mold your life into the likeness of Christ. Because of that love, we should freely surrender all. We should freely give God, God, I give you the freedom to do whatever you need to do, to take whatever measures in circumstances, in life, in relationships, whatever, Lord, to accomplish your plans and purposes me. And I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. You're too good to do anything cruel. You're too wise to make a mistake. But I'm going to also acknowledge you're too infinite to often explain yourself to my finite mind. And therefore, when I cannot trace your hand, I cannot understand the reason behind what's happening, I'm going to choose to trust your heart because you demonstrated on that cross where you spilt your blood that you love me with an eternal love. So I pray that God will give us the grace as those first worshipers to enter the Christmas spirit by offering him our true worship, by acknowledging he's Lord, Savior, strive to be like him, and surrender control to him. As we extend the invitation this morning, possibly you're here and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, you've heard the gospel today. 
You've heard who Jesus is. You've heard why he came to this earth. Because he loves you. Just like he loved my brother and wouldn't let him off and continued to pursue him until he broke him down and captured him, just like God pursued and conquered and captured my life. And you're here this morning, if you're lost, you, you may think you're here for another reason. Somebody could have drugged you here. I don't know what. You might be after some good-looking girl here in the church. I don't know what it might be. But God is the most high. And the reason God has you here today is to hear what you just heard. To have an opportunity to put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. To make your heart His home as you invite Him in to forgive you of your sins. As you lay down your life in total surrender before the Most High God who loved you enough to come to this earth to die for you. And then most of you know are believers. Goodness gracious. I pray this will ignite worship. That we'll have a, a Christmas as we've never known in terms of really entering the true Christmas spirit and giving Him the worship and the honor and the adoration that He desires, a worship that is internal, captures our entire being, that's intense, but is humble. Because if He's the most high, we're the most what? Low. And the amazing thing is, this most high God stooped to where we are to bring us up to where He is. Amen? How can we not worship? So as we enter this time of invitation, if you're a believer, worship. Worship. If you're an unbeliever, put your faith in Jesus. Please stand as the invitation is extended.